it's not always war that people are fleeing. Sometimes it's famine, it's epidemic disease, it's persecution. There are lots of different reasons that people need to leave their home. Welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this session, I'm speaking with Rebecca, Marcus and Lewis on training and delivery of maternity care in low resource settings. So what I wanted to do in the session is really dig into uh, what Rebecca's been doing in various locations across the world as a trained midwife and indeed as a graduate of the MSc in Extreme Medicine. So quite recently, she's been working with uh, SOS Mediterranean, uh, which is a ship delivering humanitarian care within the Mediterranean. So it's also an organization which advocates on behalf of people in distress at sea without partiality and without concern for their nationality, country of origin, social belonging, religious belief, political or ethnic affiliation. So since it was started operating at sea in 2015, SOS Mediterranean has been patrolling the central Mediterranean regions in international waters between Italy and Libya. And this is where most boats are in distress. So the rescues take place outside Libyan territorial waters, also known as the 12 mile zone. So what we wanted to do in this episode is really unpick some of the seminal learning from Rebecca's activity and indeed some of the seminal cases she's been involved with from training and practicing midwifery on these ships. Welcome to the podcast, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me and giving me the chance to talk about what I love to do. It's great to have you with us. And actually, I wonder if we could just start by just maybe digging into your training and what sort of humanitarian experience you had before getting involved with the current uh, INGO. So actually, I mean, I always say this, but people don't really believe it. I became a midwife to work in the humanitarian field. So I grew up with a very medical family for all my sins. I don't know what I did in a past life. I've got two parents who are doctors, two sisters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I was very aware of the humanitarian field growing up. Um, and one thing that really resonated with me is the overwhelming maternal needs and neonatal needs. So I began my training in the UK. I trained through the University of the West of England in midwifery, working in the centre of Bristol where actually I was most kind of drawn to community midwifery so working outside of the hospital I got a lot of experience in the hospital in theatres assisting in c-sections etc but I really liked the continuity element and working within the population as opposed to in a hospital uh, once I graduated from there I started working in a district general so up north slightly in Gloucester up north still down south um and that's when I started doing the master's degree with World Extreme Medicine, because one thing that I was very conscious of, and it's something that I really advocate for, is in humanitarian field, it's not a case of any care is better than no care. You really need to bring the best care possible because everyone deserves our very best. And I was very aware that despite having worked on ambulances as like a technician before, I didn't really have general healthcare knowledge. I was very specific. And of course, the needs in the field are very different. So I started working through the masters, got a lot of really great experiences learning from people who were from fields very different from myself. Um, and it was actually through the masters who my roommate on the first course, which has that for a complete circle, put me in contact with an organization called Global Midwife Response. It used to be called Midwife Pilgrim. But what they're basically doing is they're placing volunteer midwives. So it's an unpaid 
um, into contexts where maybe other NGOs are working and don't normally hire a midwife, but they need a midwife for this specific time period. Um, with them, I was put in contact with uh, an NGO started by a British nurse, actually, called Yazidi Emergency Support. So they were working in West Iraq and in Kurdistan, specifically in the area of Sinjar, which was the location of the 2014 Yazidi genocide. And they were working to try and restore some maternal health care there, because unfortunately the maternity department was completely flattened during the ISIS occupation. So I spent a couple of months there working within the city, working on a refugee camp on top of Sinjar Mountain, which unfortunately is still there today, um, when it was only supposed to be temporary. Having worked with them, I really wanted to continue working in the field. So after having been able to develop some of the skills of the local staff, being able to give a bit back to this, this population, um, I started working with MSF, Medicine Sans Frontières. So the first, the first mission that I did with MSF was to Yemen. So working on the front line in an area called Tyre Zuban. Unfortunately, I got medevaced because I was very clever and got cholera. <laughs> Um, but it really cemented that this was the style of working that I wanted to do. Um, I worked with MSF, as I said, I worked in Yemen. I also worked in a refugee camp on the Greek island of Samos. Um, so kind of two, two sides of a journey in some ways. Um, before my final mission with MSF was in Tigray in northern Ethiopia. Um, so this was an area of active conflict. It was during 2021. And what we were doing there is we were trying to restore functionality to multiple uh, healthcare centres, to two hospitals and various outreach projects as well. Um, and at the time when I went out there, I was the only midwife employed. But by the time that I was handed over, we managed to build the team up quite a bit by that stage. And then, as I said, I know I'm jumping ahead to your next question. Um, as I said with it, I felt like I'd been on two sides of a journey. Um, you know, I'd been in some of the places that people were trying to escape from, particularly working with people from Syria, across the border, in Iraq, in Tigray. And I'd also worked in some of the places where they were hoping to get to or potentially ending up in, which were the refugee camps in Greece. Um, but there wasn't any focus really on, on the middle part for me. I hadn't kind of worked along the migration pathways. And it was looking looking at it, I realised that basically the attention within NGOs, but also globally, had kind of failed. And there wasn't any attention on what people were going through. There wasn't so much NGO input into the area. And I realised that actually this is an incredibly perilous part of the journey. And it was something that I wanted to be able to help in as well. And within MSF, there was a lot of awareness around the ship that I now work on, which is the Ocean Viking, um, because actually we were in partnership on the boat at one point. And so this was this is what I decided was the next step that I was going to take to be able to give the care that I wanted to provide to people. So Rebecca, could you speak to the anatomy of SOS Mediterranean, just both from their ships, so the Aquarius and indeed the Ocean Viking, and the scope of work and, and sort of what your day-to-day -day looks like? Yeah, so I didn't work on the Aquarius. Um, that actually stopped operating by the time I went to, to SOS. Um, in terms of the Ocean Viking, which is where I work most of the time now, um, so we're six, just over 69 metre boat. It's 
So don't question me on that. <laughs> um, and we have approximately 22, 23 crew members on board, plus marine crew, because we charter the ship from a company. Um, of that crew, what we have is an overall coordinator, which we call a SARCO, which is search and rescue coordinator with a deputy to help her in her roles. I say her in the, the one that I work with most commonly as a woman. Um, we then have an 11 person SAR team. Um, so that will include a SAR team leader who is overall coordinating their response. Um, three drivers, because we have three rigid hull inflatable boats that we launch into the water from the mothership when we are going to a rescue. Um, we also have boat leaders. Um, so they're coordinating the smaller team that's on each ship and then additional crew. On the deck, so not actually going into the water for the rescue, we have a four person medical team. Uh, so for myself, I'm a midwife, but I also work as a medical team leader on board. So I'm coordinating the medical response to any cases. We have a medical doctor, a nurse, and then another midwife um, in that, although I have the midwifery skills and I do input a lot in the midwifery care on board, my role is also the coordination element. So it's really good to have an extra pair of hands. Plus also, I mean, you all know this from your experience. It's really nice to have someone with similar experience that you can bounce ideas off of and to consult with and particularly being remote it can be really hard when you're on your own um, then for the extra team members we have a, a post-rescue team leader so this is someone that's in charge of all of the survivor care once they're on board the mothership ocean viking we have a cultural mediator a logistician who's in charge of all of the day-to-day -day activities including food logistics access to sanification clean water um, and a relief and protection delegate that at the moment is provided by IFRC. So what they're looking at is the protection elements for survivors and their rights both on board and when they get to land. In terms of the area that we are operating, we operate exclusively in the central Mediterranean. So this is the area between Libya, North Africa, um, normally in the, I've got to work out my lefts and rights here, normally in the west of Libya, um, south of Malta and Lampedusa, which is an Italian territory within the central Mediterranean. And the reason that we do operate there is because it's actually the deadliest sea migration route in the world. Um, so this year alone, um, reported by IOM, there's been 1,379 reported deaths. So that, that number is actually going to be much higher. Um, and I think total we're sitting at over 25,000. And these are the ones that we know about. These are the ones that there has been a witness to what has happened. That number is easily going to be doubled 10 times more, if not even further. Um, so as you said in your introduction, we are, we're working in international waters, and this is very important. So the central Mediterranean is divided up into national waters and international waters. And of those international waters, they're also split into different search and rescue regions. So this doesn't make them part of territorial waters. What this means is that the country who's assigned to that search and rescue region has a responsibility to coordinate the rescues within that area. Um, so the rescues are coordinated by the Maritime Rescue Coordination Center or the MRCC, of which in the area we operate, there are three, which is the Libyan, the Italian, and the Maltese. Um, the Tunisian one does come up alongside, but very rarely do we call, do we participate in rescues in their search and rescue region. So Rebecca, just looking at the scale of the crisis within Europe and indeed the diversity of migrants that you see on board the ship, could you maybe speak to um, the scale and indeed the sort of the, the cross section of cases that you see on board? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for SOS Mediterranean that started operating in 2015, so far we have rescued 37,023, to be precise, 23 survivors that we've had across our two ships, the Aquarius and Ocean Viking. For Ocean Viking, we've rescued 7,500 in 106 rescue operations. Uh, what's really interesting in this is we see a lot of rhetoric in the media that it's all young, fit, healthy men. These are the people that are trying to cross. Well, of that number, we had over 2,300 children. Also, over 10% of them are women. Um, in terms of the cases that I see, I've been on board now many times and I've not had a single patrol where I haven't had women and children that have needed rescuing, of which the youngest one that we rescued was 10 days old. Um, so the mother had actually been at sea for three days by the time we found her as well. So that baby was seven days old when she escaped from Libya and it took us three days to find them. Um, what we're looking at in terms of ethnicity varies a lot. Um, what is almost universal for the ones that we rescue is that they are escaping from Libya. I mean, you can read the, the Human Rights Watch, the UN reports on Libya, and they're really quite horrific, um, which falls into the element that is part of our mandate, which is the protecting of survivors as well. Um, one of the things that we see across the media and there's been the attention has been drawn to it by other search and rescue NGOs because we aren't the only ones operating there are multiple others as well is that others have spoken out about they've witnessed um, pushbacks so this is the returning of people to Libya which under um, the UN and the Human Rights Watch, you can see that it's their definition, which I think is fascinating, is it's illegal to return people to places where they face immediate torture, inhumane treatment or other serious rights violations, which from those two organisations, you can see it's it's very possible, um, which is one of the reasons that we're there. So what we do know is that actually the, the presence of search and rescue ships doesn't actually encourage a, a higher number of people to leave, that they do leave anyway um, this is backed up by the figures that actually there were as many departures when there were no NGO search and rescue ships in the area uh, what does increase exponentially is the death toll um, so what we're looking at on board is as we kind of just said about Libya is we're seeing people that have suffered through grave human rights abuses that are needing the additional help and indeed we've had people on board that for example I've had a spinal fracture on board, which you wouldn't expect finding someone in the middle of the central Mediterranean to find an unstable spinal fracture, but you do. Um, in terms of what we're seeing now is we do know, you know there's a deepening political unrest in Libya, which is making the situation more volatile. We're seeing worldwide a deepening challenges and it's not always war that people are fleeing. Sometimes it's famine, it's epidemic disease, it's persecution. There are lots of different reasons that people need to leave their home. And there's even more reasons that people who have already had to leave their home might want to leave Libya if they've gone there as well. Uh, what we do see that is very challenging, as I spoke to before, is the increase in stigmatisation of these people. It's why when I, when I started talking about this, I said, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric around it all being young, fit, healthy men. And this is what is increasing. We see it in, in the UK as well with the crossings from France. Um, but we see it across the central Mediterranean crisis as well, is that 
there is a questioning about people's rights to try and make this crossing. And the thing I always say is the level of desperation to get into one of these boats that, frankly, I wouldn't go out for a day off Brixham in is incredibly high. Um, you know, it's well known how deadly this crossing is. And apart from that, you know, I've been in conflict zones and I've been there with big organizations that are very supportive and very invested in my safety and well-being. And there is a certain point where just every single part of you is screaming at you to get to safety. And it doesn't matter if you're young, old, fit, disabled, any of those things. At a certain point, your fight or flight kicks in so strong that you don't have a choice. Um, And certainly I've been in areas of the world where for those young, fit, healthy men, the options were likely death or to join a terrorist organization because you had to join one side or to run. And these are the types of people that we're picking up. And as I said, it's it's not just the conflicts. I think, you know, we all got a taste of how unstable and uncertain the world can be during COVID. And we certainly saw in the UK the lengths that people would go to to protect their families. I mean, I still remember the fistfights in Tesco's over toilet paper. And that's not being flippant. That is really that's that's people trying to defend their families, protect their families and provide for them. And this is what we see the world over, but in much more extreme circumstances where at the moment there's a big tension on the cost of living crisis. But actually, this is what people have been trying to trying to survive for a very long time in other parts of the world as well. So, Rebecca, just looking at the kind of deficits uh, on a broader scale that, that that migrants have could you maybe just speak to the deficits deficits in care so indeed as a practicing midwife looking at um sort of a, a maternal case in front of you with maybe an absence of antenatal notes or indeed assessment or indeed no assessment could you could you maybe speak to some of the cross-section of work you you see and and sort of where you have to start restart the baseline um in this care Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the commonalities that we have in the people that we have on board, but that also I was witness to in other settings, is just the complete lack of healthcare. You know, some of the people that we have on board haven't actually seen anyone medical for years, if not decades. So particularly in the women, uh, the biggest things that we have is women who are pregnant that haven't had any access to healthcare before. I've certainly diagnosed on board uh, fetal abnormality whereby they haven't had any scans or any input and they're at a point where actually even I can see that there is a problem. Um, One thing that we do see on board is particularly women of a higher gestation really struggle with the life on board and actually it's it's one of our main points of medical evacuation is pregnant women um, because of the severe health consequences. So things like raised blood pressure, um, absence of fetal movements, abnormal fetal heart rates, things like this. Um, across the section, though, you see this deprivation of, of healthcare as well. And it, it's something that I've seen as a, a tactic of a conflict is deliberate deprivation of healthcare and the targeting of healthcare facilities. Um, so you'll have people with really significant chronic conditions that haven't actually had access to care to manage them. So just as an example, I had someone with a blood glucose up in the 500s because they didn't have access to any kind of insulin or metformin to try and manage it. Um, Severe cardiac abnormalities that they've not been able to have operations for because the the system wasn't there in their country 
I had a woman that needed a liver transplant that was not available in her country because it was actually in a in a state of conflict as well. I mean, for maternal stakes, it's not kind of just on the ship because, of course, we do have them for we have them for unfortunately a, a prolongingly long period. But what you have to look at is the access to things before as well. So it's not just that, you know, in the last two weeks, they've not had access to healthcare. It's potentially for years previously. And in terms of maternal outcomes worldwide, you've got more than half of the maternal deaths worldwide. So the entire world put together, more than half of them are occurring in fragile and humanitarian settings. And of which 86% of them occur in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. And that's a huge amount. Um, just to really kind of emphasise it, one woman dies every 90 seconds from complications relating to childbirth. It is one of the most dangerous things a woman can do in her lifetime, and that includes in developed and developing countries. It's incredibly dangerous for anyone because of the stresses on the body and the amount of things that can go wrong. It is a very natural process. And I am a big believer in normalising things like that. But you can't normalise things when, 90, you know, nearly 90% of the deaths happen in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Um, in terms of the contributing causes to this, your leading causes are blood loss. So you're looking at postpartum hemorrhages, antepartum hemorrhages, high blood pressure. So this could be preeclampsia or pregnancy-induced hypertension that then has huge um repercussions you can end up having seizures um, oxygen deprivation to the brain multi-system organ failure um, you've got infection it's a big risk not just in maternity but we see it a lot on board as well which is untreated infections that would have been simple to treat at the beginning you know you think a, a simple wound needs a good clean and a and a cover but actually they've got a really nasty infection now and is it going to be resistant to the antibiotics that we have um, and actually, 13%, so one three, 13% of all maternal deaths worldwide comes from unsafe abortion care. And this is something that I've seen a lot in the field when I've been working with other organisations, is lack of access to safe abortion care is deadly. Um, we see a lot of media attention on it at the moment, particularly with changes in legal access and things like this. Um but the thing is, is it, it doesn't actually, restricting access to termination of pregnancy, it doesn't stop termination of pregnancy. What it does do is it stops safe access to termination of pregnancy. So what you're looking at there is then actually the maternal rate of death is going to go up massively. Um, and the fact that, you know, it's contributing to 13% of all of those maternal deaths tells you how big the problem is. So just in terms of scope, 250 babies are born every minute. 250 a minute and this is worldwide we do know that in developing countries it's about 10 times the birth rate in developed than in developed countries um but it means that looking at all of that particularly looking at the rates of maternal death in sub-saharan africa which can be attributed to a lack of skilled birth attendants but actually that's gone up to about the latest figure i have is from 2019 which is obviously a bit old now but that's gone up to 83 percent of births are now being attended by a skilled practitioner. So I don't think you can contribute everything to that. But those figures are really, they need to be in our minds when we're caring for women in the setting that I am now, which is on the ship, because they have an impact. And their previous access to healthcare can have a huge impact on what we need to provide them on board. You know, if they've lacked 
access to safe abortion care, for example, and they're now in a highly advanced gestation, the psychological impact of that can be massive. And particularly in those that have been unable to access safe abortion care, you've then got an increased risk of suicidal tendencies, which is something that really needs to be on our mind on board. Um, but also just looking generally, I would say one of the biggest things that we see on board is sexual violence. And it's something that's it's not really recognised. And honestly, I didn't think about it when I was going into it, but it is a huge part of a midwife's role. So not just on board, but but worldwide. Um, and that's not exclusive to maternal care. So what we know is sexual violence affects men, women and children. It's not an exclusively adult female issue. Um, I don't like that word. It's not an exclusively adult female phenomenon. It does affect all genders and age ranges. Um, we also know that in times of unrest, so this could be conflict, it could be lots of different things, that the rates of sexual violence increase. So in conflict, we know it's used as a tactic of warfare. However, it actually also goes up within populations. So within the communities during a time of unrest in their country, the rates of sexual violence will soar. And unfortunately, the access to good health care is very poor. And that's not just in developing countries. We know within the UK that male access to sexual violence care is incredibly stigmatised and it makes it a huge barrier to them reaching out and to getting support. Um, so this is definitely something that's always in the minds of midwives when we're working in humanitarian settings. But it's also very relevant for us on the ship in that we have overwhelming numbers of reports from survivors of incredibly hard stories of sexual violence across all of the demographics that we have on board as well. Rebecca, could you just maybe unpack for listeners what it's like to be on board? Because, um, you know, some of the second and third order effects of not maybe having access to referral services, um, indeed, maybe not having access to as many tests, um, or indeed, retrospective case notes could you could you maybe paint a picture for sort of where you're working from and and maybe the limit limitations of your uh, of your practice so on board we have a medical module so this is basically a very small primary healthcare clinic and um, what we've got is we've got an emergency room and this has got some key emergency equipment which includes uh, an aed for example some monitoring equipment um, we also have iv drugs easy ios if we need um, and airway adjuncts. Um, then in addition to that, we have a midwife clinic that is equipped for um, birth and for the sexual violence care that we've been talking about and an observation room. Now, obviously, when you're at sea, you can't go very far, very fast. So you're talking about 10 nautical miles an hour that we can go at top speed, which means at times you are hours away from help. Um, we do have the ability to do an emergency referral or a medical evacuation, which we call a medevac. Um, to do this, it really needs to be a life-threatening or limb-threatening um, event. And the reason for that is because they're actually very challenging to arrange. Um, and we don't get to dictate whether or not someone is accepted for medical evacuation. This is on the health authorities on land. So what we would do is we would request a medical evacuation. And then we would also discuss any limitations to that. So if, for example, the person is immobile, they can't walk, it's going to change the way that we do a medical evacuation. They can't climb down a ladder to get into another boat. So that might be one that we prioritise a helicopter for. However, the other big challenge is the weather. Your medical evacuation might have been accepted. They might have said, yeah, absolutely, it's urgent. We need to get them to land as soon as possible to additional care resources. 
But if you're blowing a gale and you've got five meter waves, there's no way that a helicopter or a boat is going to be able to come near you. And certainly we've been in situations where there has been a life threatening complication whereby it's taken 16 hours to be able to get to a weather condition and a location close enough to be able to evacuate someone. Um, we also have the element that, you know, most of the time rescues go smoothly and they go well and, you know, we train for this, but you can have a, a mass casualty. So this could be that you're, you've come across a rescue or you're in the middle of a rescue and the, the vessel that you're rescuing people from collapses or capsizes and you end up with multiple people in the water. Um, we're lucky that this is a rare event, but as we said, we've only got four medical personnel on board. You might have additional trained people in the, in the SAR team. We certainly sometimes have nurses or have paramedics, but they're actually in the water trying to pull people out of the water. So on board, most likely you've only got four trained medical personnel. So what we have to do also is, is make sure that everyone has a basic understanding of how to respond in a mass casualty. So this is doing CPR, being able to support with breathing, um, triaging and actually supporting the survivors as well. Um, on board, we try and equip ourselves for responding to this. But of course, we've got a limited amount of space on a 69 metre boat. And you could be doing this, this rescue with a mass casualty response with 450 survivors already on board if you've had a big rescue. Um, for example, one of the biggest rescues that I did was over 360 people in a single boat. So we equip the ship to be able to respond medically to this. We try and train the personnel to respond to this as well. But there's only so many things that you can carry on a 69 metre boat. And there's only so many situations you can prepare for. The other element to it is that the time between completing the rescue and by completing, I just mean evacuation of people to the mothership and to being able to disembark them in a place of safety can actually be an incredibly long time. The last operation of Ocean Viking, it took 21 days from the time that they completed rescues to the time that they were able to disembark people. So the other factor is, is that we actually need to prepare for primary healthcare as well, because certainly you can't evacuate everyone, despite actually some of them having really significant needs. You need to be able to respond to some of them on board. So this is where we've developed our medical response and our resources as the situation has evolved. So Rebecca, could you speak to any seminal cases that you have experienced that maybe sort of typify the excellent work that SOS Mediterranean do in the in the Mediterranean uh, and indeed working as, as as an international NGO in the in the waters? So I've certainly had multiple cases where the people on board were a matter of hours away from dying. Um, unfortunately, this year we did conduct a rescue where two of the two of the people on board didn't survive the crossing. Um, we've rescued people from under forty degree heat in the central Mediterranean with no water, no fuel, and they've just been drifting for over twenty four hours, not going anywhere. And it's only by chance, actually, that we were able to find them. Um, in terms of the medical cases. I had on my last patrol on board, which was in August, we had rescued, I think it was around 450 persons across, it was eight or nine rescue operations. And the level, and it may sound really silly, because we're talking about scabies here. So scabies is not, you know, it's not a life-threatening disorder, but it is incredibly distressing and it's incredibly harmful psychologically. But we had so many cases 
And I think it was around 189 cases amongst the survivors. And so many other presentations of things like small wounds, um, infected wounds, that actually we had to do effectively a mass casualty triage every morning, looking through the cases and seeing which ones needed immediate care, which ones could be delayed till the afternoon, and which ones, although we knew they needed access to the healthcare, had to be postponed until the next day, because there were the needs were just so high. Um, and this isn't actually our role to be providing. You know, these people have a right to disembark into a place of safety on land and have access to high quality healthcare. But the fact that we were able to get people comfortable and to provide them with their medical needs in that time, and I think it was 10 or 12 days before we were able to disembark them that time, is a testament really to the energy, the skills and the dedication of the staff that we have on board. Um, and multiple times, and it gets me every time, multiple times I've had survivors just say to me, you're the first person that has cared what happens to me in a very long time. And that really typifies what we're doing we're showing people that there is still people that care about what happens to them we've never met them I don't know them I don't know their mother I don't know where they're coming from I've probably never been where they've come from but we care what happens to them we want them to be able to fill their dreams we want them to be happy and healthy and to have a future and to be able to really show people that there is still some good and that people do want them to be happy and healthy matters a huge amount to them and it's one of the biggest things that we do. So finally Rebecca as we land on the conversation could you maybe speak to your journey into humanitarian work and indeed for listeners that might want to be get get involved within a humanitarian international non-government organization how they might go about it? So the biggest thing is actually if you're wanting to, that's that's half of the half of the journey. You know, working in humanitarian fields is it's very specific. It can be deeply uncomfortable at times. It can really make you question a lot about yourself and the situation that you're in. Um so one of the things I would do is I would look into the different humanitarian actions that are happening, whether that's in healthcare or actually the other misconception is you don't have to be a medic to get into these things. We always need logisticians, we need supply, we need HR, we need coordinators. Um, look into the different areas and then get volunteering and it doesn't have to be overseas it can be in your home country looking into the different volunteering options but also just having an awareness of the area that you would like to work in but also where you feel that you could be most beneficial because as I said at the beginning and this is something that's really important to me is you need to be experienced and you need to know what you are bringing to that environment um, no matter what, you shouldn't be going to places just to gain experience. You know, people around the world deserve the absolute best and they deserve people who know their role and what they can bring to that. So what I'd say is master your craft, whatever that is, whether it's logistics, it's medical, get comfortable um, with the uncomfortable parts of it. So handling of emergencies there. Or maybe you're really comfortable with emergencies, but you're not so comfortable with the day to day small primary health care issues get comfortable with the areas that you're uncomfortable with because there are times where you're going to have to deal with it all on your own and then start looking for volunteering options you can look overseas there's a lot of NGOs that accept volunteers to work in those fields um, and then if it's something that you're wanting to go into as a career there are multiple big NGOs that are looking for experienced personnel because the biggest thing I would say is we need more people in the humanitarian setting so go for it you know, and it doesn't have to be that you're looking for a long term career out of it. It might be that actually you're able to volunteer your time and your skills for a limited period. And that could be 
two months, it could be six months, it could be one year. Just going into humanitarian medicine is it doesn't have to be your whole career. It could be if you wanted to, and it can be an incredibly rewarding career. Um, so yeah, know what you're bringing into the field, know what you want to give and what you can give, whether that's time, expertise, and then go for it. You know, there's no such thing as uh, the right time to go into it. So what I say is if you've got that desire to help others, use that, whether that's at home or abroad. Rebecca, listen, that's a fantastic place to finish off and um, some great salient points there. Listen, thank you for your time over the last hour. And what we'll do is put links to SOS Mediterranean in the show notes so people can check out the uh, the NGO and indeed uh, references to the information you, you, you spoke about in the episode. So thank you again for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.